This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. Hey friends, welcome to the Disability to Visibility Podcast. Conversations on disability politics, culture, and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. Today's episode is on climate action with Kira Sherwood O'Regan, an indigenous multidisciplinary storyteller and activist based in Aotearoa, also known as New Zealand. Kira's work in activism centers structurally oppressed communities in social change and crosses the intersections of indigenous and disability rights to health and climate change. Kira was shared by her involvement in climate activism and why climate movements must center indigenous and disabled people. Are you ready? Away we go. So Kira, thank you so much for being on podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm, yeah, really stoked. Well, I'm really stoked too. And uh, I guess to get started, uh, you know, you're based in Aotearoa, and that's otherwise for most listeners, that's also known as New Zealand. And uh, I was wondering if you start with you just sharing a little bit about your background and just kind of where you're located and just the different communities that you're a part of. Yeah, sure thing. Thank you, Alice, for having me. I might introduce myself um, in my traditional way then, um, because I find that really helps to situate me where I'm placed um, amongst my genealogy, my whakapapa, and amongst the many communities that um, I'm a part of. So I say, um, ko kohuro te moka, ko arai te uru te moana, ko e uenuku te whare kei moiraki, Ko motupohue te puke, ko awarua te moana, ko tahu potuki te whare kei awarua. Uh, ko kāti rakiamo, ko kāti waiwai, ko kāti rua hekiheki kā karakataka. Um, e mihi ana ki a koutou, tēnā koe Alice, aku mihi nui ki a koe, uh, mō tēnei punua pauho. Uh, ko Kira Shiro Regan tōku ikoa, uh, hiuria hau nō tiwi kaitahu kei te waipaunamu. Um, so what I shared there is that Kohuro is my mountain, Araiteuru are my waters, and Uenuku is my meeting house in Moiraki. Motupohue is my hill, and Awarua is my ocean, and Tahu Potuki is my meeting house in Awarua, or um, what's often what's now known as Bluff. I also shared that Katirakiamo, Katiwaiwai, and Katirohekiheki are my people, um, and so I said that they're yeah my people, so my hapu. Um, and also the callings that greet you all. So I thank you to you, Alice, and to all of the people listening to um, this podcast. My name is Kedashuaro Regan, and I'm of the Kaitahu Iwi, or people of Te Waiponamu, which is now known as the South Island of so-called New Zealand. So, yeah, so I guess this is the way that I introduce myself in relation to my ancestors and the lands and the waters of my people. Um, which are probably like for me the really consistent things, but I feel like the rest of my bio or in, or how I introduce myself um, seems to change pretty frequently for me. 
I guess I say that these days um, I tend to see myself as a multidisciplinary storyteller and activist. Uh, and the work that I do is at the intersections of Indigenous and disability rights alongside climate change. So um, I live with fibromyalgia and a few other funky health quirks. Um, and I say that these days I'm a recovering medical student with an ongoing interest in health or health equity for structurally oppressed communities. And so, yeah, I kind of sit um, in between, yeah, Indigenous, um, disabled, and also the queer Wotakatapui community as well. So that's pretty much me. Kia ora. <laughs> clearly right now uh, we are in the midst of the uh, coronavirus pandemic and before we really dig into climate activism how are you doing what's up you know how are you holding up yeah thank you thank you for asking that I think it's um yeah it's it's hard to find words which I, I know sounds like a bit of a cop-out answer but I think it's hard to find words to articulate the feelings at the moment because, um, you know, as you know, of course, our disabled community is so massively impacted by this coronavirus um, pandemic. I think I'm feeling at the moment, when I think about the international context, I feel very grateful um, to be in Aotearoa, to be in New Zealand. Yeah, I think I'm feeling very privileged that our government has made the decision uh, to essentially go hard and go early. Um, I think when I think around, yeah, friends overseas like yourselves or uh, others in the States or um, in Europe, a lot of um, other disabled friends that we have overseas, I get quite anxious. Um, and I think also just at home, um, Maybe I'm getting a little bit frustrated with, I think, a lot of the responses around COVID because I think a lot of people in New Zealand, um, because we have kind of gone hard and gone early, I think a lot of people are forgetting how serious it can be. And so I'm just seeing a lot of privilege on display. And particularly when over these past, you know, four weeks and even before lockdown was announced, our community has just been organising extensively you know I had to shift the support groups I run for fibromyalgia onto zoom um, which was okay because I kind of had done that before as well but you know we were all having to think about who in our community um, has got support who hasn't how do we get PPE to people um, and our disabled community has been organizing so so much and yet then there will be other people um, who are just disrespecting the lockdown or um, you know, people complaining about not being able to get haircuts. And I'm just like, really? That's what you care about right now? Um, so it's a bit of a weird time. Yeah, I would say. A lot of emotional energy. Yeah, it's a, there's a lot of emotional labor for sure. I think, you know, there's just the day-to-day -day stuff. And also just being kind of overwhelmed by, you know, all the news and the latest kind of, find things about this virus and, uh, you know, dealing also with the fact that 
I think both you and I know that way after, you know, these kind of orders are lifted, you know, for many of us, we still will probably be at home because we don't feel safe. You know, there's no vaccine anytime soon. There's really no treatment. So while most people will be going back to quote, quote, normal life, I think it's going to be a really long haul for a lot of us. And that's what I think is makes me nervous is the fact that we're going to be forgotten. Yeah, I think I definitely share some of those same concerns, especially, you know, especially seeing like in the workplace in particular, like this rush to then being on Zoom for all of the meetings or um, seeing all of this kind of internet accessibility or like you know just all of these different ways of working from home and how as soon as able-bodied people um, are impacted so as soon as there's a pandemic that affects able-bodied people then all of a sudden it's okay to do zoom meetings it's okay to work from home um, it's okay to work flexible hours and I think it can be pretty frustrating you know for those of us who have been trying to advocate for that sort of thing for a really long time and saying why can't I study from home why do I physically have to come into this lab when I'm unwell like why do I have to do all of these things you know when you know institutions like academic institutions or when workplaces are making things very inaccessible but then as soon as you know as soon as this has happened it's been a very very quick shift to see a lot of those accommodations that we've been saying we need um you know, we've seen those essentially established overnight. And so, yeah, I, I share a similar concern. I hope that, you know, as we go back to the quote unquote new normal, that um, others recognize that a lot of those options need to stay there, that we actually need to be thinking around not how we return to how we were before the pandemic, but that we take the learning um that has come through this and say, okay, you know what? We need to make our workplaces more accessible in general. We need to look after our communities so that when um, when big things happen that are going to affect our livelihoods, people aren't going to be stuck without the essentials that they need. We need to reconsider our whole economic model so that people aren't forced to work in jobs that put themselves at risk while others who have financial privilege can stay at home, you know? I think all of those sorts of things are very front of mind. And I really just, um, I'm hoping that we can ensure that that stays on the agenda after the quote unquote, yeah, like as we get to that sort of, you know, quote unquote new normal. Um, but I think that also takes a lot of energy, um, mixed optimism. <laughs> I'm trying to talk about uh, climate activism. And before we do that, I just I'd like to learn a little bit about your involvement in both uh, Indigenous and disability rights. Could you just kind of describe a little bit about like how you became kind of an activist and, you know, maybe where you kind of got started? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think... I don't know. I think the short answer is it's complicated. I've had a really interesting, I think, 
um, journey to my activism on all fronts um, because I think my activism has emerged as I've started to kind of grow into my identities a bit, if that makes sense. So when I was very small, my poa or my grandfather, um, he was one of the lead negotiators for our iwi or our tribe's um, Waitangi claim and settlement. Um, yeah, the settlement process was around, um, yeah, it was around recognizing breaches of our rights as indigenous peoples. And so my poa had been involved in that when I was very little. And so I was often uh, sort of surrounded by, yeah, by that. And I guess he's been a very big figure in my life uh, growing up. And then so he did that and his father was a surgeon actually and he had um, advocated for a lot of things he was a sort of surgeon and city councillor in wellington uh, a bit of an activist as well and then his father's father um so my poa's father um he was also involved in politics a lot as well and so i think on that o'regan sort of family line there has been a lot of activism and then as I was growing up, I was surrounded by that. And I had my dad who is, um, he's an archeologist. He also, when I was very small, he used to work for our iwi, so our tribe and preserving cultural heritage. And then my auntie Hannah has been very involved in preserving and growing our indigenous language. And so when I was very small, I'd be taken to a lot of hui or, um, or meetings on our marae, so our meeting places, meeting houses. Uh, all around the place and you know when you're little you're kind of just playing with the other kids but you know you hear the adults talking about a lot of important issues for our iwi so for our tribe and our tribal community and so I was really exposed to that and I would say that when I was really little probably my yeah the kind of three key people that I really wanted to impress were my dad uh, my auntie Hannah and then my poet my grandfather and so they probably instilled a lot of that sort of activist thinking in me quite young. Um, and then on the other side of my whanau, so on the other side of my family, my mum is Pākehā or, or um, white. And so she's worked a lot in environmental programs, mostly for like regional and city councils and things like that. And so she really influenced me when I was little growing up in terms of like appreciating the environment or experiencing lots of the unique environment that we have in New Zealand because, you know, she'd take us all camping. So we'd go camping a lot as a family. And she really got me thinking about environmental issues, um, mostly from that kind of level of individual action, like, you know, recycling or producing less waste. But I think that kind of formed the sort of platform for bigger structural issues. And so I think um, I never used to really think about it in this way, but I guess it's quite an indigenous thing to think about how your family has influenced you and your activism and things like that. And um, the more I think on it now, the more I kind of think about how, how could I have not turned out to be an activist? Like, I, I'm not sure if that would be possible, you know? You know, it's meant to be, you know, especially since, you know, I'm not from your part of the world. I'm, I'd love to learn about what are some of the major environmental issues that, you know, you're really concerned about. 
to your local community and your region? Yeah, I think that's also like a really hard question to answer because I think there are so many levels, but I'm willing to give it a go. Um, but I guess I'll just say up front that I think I'm not necessarily, um, you know, a huge expert on this because in, in my experience, you know, um, when I was very small, I grew up in the South Island and around my family and around my tribe. Um, but then my family moved to Auckland, which is where I'm based at the moment. And so I think maybe the way that I relate to those issues is, um, yeah, I guess quite inherently privileged. I think a lot of the issues that I really am concerned about in New Zealand happen on maybe two levels. So the first one being the kind of national political level, um, and then the second one being more focused on yeah, Indigenous uh, environmental issues and particularly being concerned for um, the future of Te Waipounamu, so my land back home, which I'm not on at the moment. And so I think on a national level, some of the things that concern me is just I think that New Zealand has this reputation for being clean and green and um, surprise, it's all marketing. <laughs> um you know, I think we, we do have a tourism sector that, you know, relies on having a lot of people come here because of that perception of it being very clean and green. But I think, you know, I think New Zealand has to wrestle with the fact that, you know, we try to play off this thing of being, you know, the small underdogs, but we're, you know, we're a very privileged country. Um, you know, we have a lot of wealth that definitely is concentrated Um in the hands of mostly white, older, able-bodied men. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, the approaches that we take to environmental issues are very much surface level rather than actually dismantling the systems that are causing climate change and that are also causing the oppression of numerous communities. But then in terms of sort of direct examples I was really fortunate to be invited to uh, the Ngai Tahu, so, so my iwi, my tribe's um, climate symposium, which happened last year. So I was invited to help MC that, which was really, really fun, uh, really, really interesting and a real privilege to be back, um, to be invited back home. And while we were there, we basically heard um, a lot of information from the team in my tribe who have been leading out on a climate change strategy. So how we support our tribe to, yeah, to adapt to and respond to climate change. And so some of the things that really struck me um, was particularly around our mocha, our mountain Auraki. So Auraki, um, whose colonized name is Mount Cook. Basically, Auraki is our um, our mocha Ariki. So a very a very sacred mountain for our people, a very important mountain for our people, and Maybe it helps to explain that as Māori, um, you know, we see our relationships with land and with the natural environment through whakapapa, so through this, um, yeah, through genealogy or this, yeah, just I guess this idea of relationship and, and heritage and things. And so, like, when I share, shared my way of introducing myself, my pepeha at the beginning of this, I referenced, you know, the mountains and the rivers um, that are important to my people and Aoraki is sort of the the uh, the mocha that is really central for for all of our tribe across the South Island and so basically through climate change a lot of the glaciers around there are melting 
um, and Aoraki is starting to have a lot more warmer days. And so he's a very um, impressive mountain to view. He has this sort of like big, um, big snowy cape around him. And it's just, um, yeah, awe inspiring to be there and really, um, yeah, I think a very profound experience going back and seeing Aoraki, seeing my mountain last year. And so it does make me really sad to hear that through, you know, climate change that he's melting um, and that, you know, that that might be something that my mokopuna or my grandchildren won't be able to see. They won't be able to um, see the snowy cape on Aoraki um, or that a lot of the landscape around there might be quite different um, with a lot of the glaciers melting and flooding and things happening. Um, and then on top of that, another issue that I'm really concerned about is the coastal erosion. So most of our marae or meeting houses in the South Island are coastal. And so there's a lot of concern around how that erosion is going to affect um, affect our marae because they're very culturally significant places. And so the reality is that with coastal erosion and as sea levels rise, um, in a lot of those situations, those marae are going to have to move. And alongside the marae moving, we also have to think about our other wahi tapu, so our other sacred sites. So those can be things like urupa or cemeteries where our ancestors have been buried for generations and generations and generations. Um, and, you know, at this climate symposium with my um, with my iwi last year we're having to actually have that conversation around you know what does it mean to move an urupa like is that something that can be done you know can you move can you move this whole symmetry and what does it mean to do that like um i think that's quite a traumatic process because we also often um bury like the placenta and things and in, in wahitapu and spaces like that um, of our children or like plant trees there and so there's like there's this um you know there's this cultural dynamic there which is that you know we bury our dead there as a way of you know I I guess it's you know connecting us back to the land that we come from and so you know it's not as simple for us as just being like okay find another site for it it's like that's going to be something that's going to be really traumatic for us I think one other example that I'm interested in and which I don't know very much about um, but I'm interested in is thinking around the different species um, that are important to us because in New Zealand we have a very interesting and unique species. We have a lot of birds and so for a lot of our native and endangered species they're birds and they're big birds like the kiwi that people might be familiar with that can't fly um, and haven't developed um haven't developed in a way to be able to fly and to be able to manage with a lot of predators because that, yeah, that we just didn't have many predators um, before the arrival of uh, humans and then, you know, other mammals that were brought with colonization. And so I'm concerned about a lot of our species, a lot of our birds, a lot of our fish species particularly fish species that have been affected by hydroelectric as well. We have a lot of hydroelectric um, dams and things down south, which are obviously, um, if you're thinking about renewable energy, you're like, okay, that's really great that you have lots of renewable energy, but also what does that mean for lots of the species that then can't get through their traditional migratory routes and things? Um, and then for me being 
um, being from right down the bottom of the South Island, we have a lot of families there or, or some families who um, engage with titi or mutton birds, so they're the sooty shearwater and um, they're on some of the sort of offshore islands and um, they're a really important cultural cultural harvest is uh, collecting titi and I understand that through climate change um, that they might become more endangered as well and then also concerned about what are the um, what are the repercussions for us as Indigenous peoples as far as our rights are concerned because the government has a responsibility to protect our rights and um, the government or the Crown has agreed for certain species, so certain Tonga species or precious species like titi to be protected. So what happens if uh, through climate change, which is predominantly not caused by Indigenous peoples, what happens if that means that we can no longer live up to the standards that have been set in the treaty. I think that's probably a pretty comprehensive list of things that are on my mind as far as Indigenous climate change goes. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. I just, you know, I think uh, this is the opportunity for so many of us to really learn about it and just, you know, take it seriously and to be in solidarity with Indigenous people all over the world who are fighting to defend their land and just to try to teach people, especially non-Indigenous people, how important the relationship that Indigenous people have to the land. And I think that's something that's really missing in these kind of larger, well-known, you know, climate movements. I was wondering if you would... Uh, Try to expand on things that you've observed and experienced within these these broader kind of activist movements, and you know what are some of the things that are problematic about them? Yeah, for sure. Um, how much time have you got? You know, like there are so so many issues. <laughs> um, yeah, I think maybe just like as a broad comment. How do I say this? I mean, I can be quite blunt here. So I think a lot of climate NGOs just frankly need to interrogate why they exist. And that probably sounds quite harsh. Um, But the reason that I say this is because I think as Indigenous peoples, as disabled people, um, as other communities that have been oppressed, we've been having to think about these these issues for such a long time, right? It's like, you know, it affects our communities first and worst, like when there are hurricanes, when there are fires, when there are, you know, power shutoffs, when there are all of these kinds of things, it's our communities that get affected. I think a lot of the climate movement kind of comes, come, it has an interesting whakapapa. And so I guess, like, for me, I think about a lot of things relationally or through this lens of whakapapa um, or genealogy, right? And so, when I think about lots of the climate NGOs that exist, a lot of them have come, you know, through say like the sixties and the hippie movement and this like big conservation movement, which I think is very much grounded and very much intertwined with white supremacy, Um, with white supremacy and with ableism, you know, it comes from an ideology of like preserving nature because nature is so good and it's so separate from people like, 
I hate to be kind of judgmental, but I do just sort of envisage a lot of sort of white hippies, basically, who, you know, want to go and trek in the big national parks and just observe pristine nature because they are able to benefit from um, nature being absolutely destroyed in so many other ways to fuel their capitalist system that they are then benefiting from, you know. And so I think when we think around the whakapapa or the genealogy of a lot of these organizations, you know, they come from that sort of conservation movement, which really is quite, yeah, quite oppressive. And so then when I think around how that has evolved with climate change as we've started to see, you know, the climate movement emerge, like, you know, from maybe back decades ago when it was primarily very, very scientific and it was a very heavily scientific um, exclusive community that was talking around climate change to then how it started to become more mainstream. I think a lot of those same ideologies like exist within the climate NGOs that are big and take action today. And so um, it kind of got me thinking a while back around, you know, why does your movement exist? Like, why does your organization actually exist? And I've had to ask myself this question a few times as well around some of the things that I do and the things that I choose to engage on or, you know, when I have an idea and I'm like, oh my goodness, I should make this cool big project and I can do this, this and this. And then I realized that actually there are probably other organizations I could go and support, but it's me centering myself. Like, why do I want to do that project? Is it actually because this is really necessary for a community or an issue that's really important to me? Or is there some ego at play in here that I need to interrogate and start to strip back? And I think in the case of a lot of climate NGOs, there is definitely that ego element. You know, they could have, as soon as they realize, oh, climate change is a thing and it's affecting lots of communities, they could have gone, oh shit, maybe we should be listening to um, indigenous people whose land is being exploited by extractive industry. Oh crap, maybe we should have talked to those disabled people who were saying that they're getting really sick from um, from these industries or things like that. But they haven't. They have instead sort of created these movements which really center their own privileged experience. And then they wonder why climate change isn't getting actually addressed. And it's because their whole theory of change is quite superficial, I feel. You know, if your climate movement doesn't exist to like unpack capitalism, to dismantle ableism, to dismantle colonialism, then, you know, what are you doing? I think that's an excellent question because this really applies to all forms of activism where I get, you know, it sounds very obvious, but it's all about, you know, putting the resources and the attention on those who are most impacted. You know, what are some of the ways, what are some of the changes that you would like to see just very broadly among kind of climate activists on centering indigenous and disabled people, especially their wisdom and their their relationships and their knowledge about living in a world that's very hostile and they've had generations of wisdom that's just really not valued. 
Yeah, I think there, I mean, I think there are so many changes that are needed uh, in the climate movement to make it a safe space for Indigenous and for disabled activists and for queer activists and, um, you know, activists from the global south and various other communities that are oppressed. I think some of the things that would help, though, is if first and foremost people and organizations did ask that question of themselves, like, what do I exist? Like, what, what, why do we exist? Why does our organization exist? And what are we trying to achieve? And so I think I'd like to see organizations asking that question and then putting their money where their mouth is. Like, if you want to be more climate justice focused, then, you know, pay people, like pay organizations from um, structurally oppressed communities to come and, you know, teach you how you should do it um, and just listen and recognize that that's going to involve a lot of unlearning. It's going to involve a lot of um, devolving power. It's going to mean that you you will have to recognize, oh, crap, I've been taking up way too much space here and I need to stay in my lane. And I think for a lot of people, and particularly for a lot of sort of type A climate activists, of which I think I kind of am one of them as well, you know, it's, it, it requires eating a bit of humble pie and saying, oh, actually, you know what, maybe my job in climate activism is not to be the person who's speaking on everything. Maybe my job is actually to go, how do I get other people into these spaces? How do I support other communities? Um, to be heard and how do I do that in a way that's not centering me and my own activism and so I think those would be some really important places to start and I would say that the other one which is probably another big piece is around narratives like thinking around the narratives that you're using because um, in the work that I do with Activate um, with this social impact agency that my partner and I run. Um, that's Jason, Jason Berberg on Twitter. Everybody go follow him. He's awesome. And I'm not biased at all. Um, but like, you know, we do a lot of work around narrative change and very often the narratives that we see um, being promoted by climate activists and climate organizations are inherently ableist. So whether that's stuff like, you know, seeing people talk about COVID and coronavirus and being like, oh, but nature is healing right now. Humans are the virus. Like, no, absolutely not. That is a disgusting sort of um, narrative that really doesn't need to be promoted. And what we should be thinking about is actually that COVID is probably the time to be thinking the most around um, the at-risk communities and how they're affected and how we can support them to have their voices heard. Or things like how so much of the climate movement, um, a lot of their demands talk around laziness or this concept of laziness or convenience. So whether that's things like the straw ban or like prepackaged vegetables, or, you know, chopped up vegetables and things like this, there's this predominant narrative that, um, you know, oh, straws are just a convenience, you know, plastic packaging is just a convenience. And when those narratives exist, they inherently are obviously ableist because like, hey, disabled people need those things to survive. Um, but also they promote this idea that is inherently linked to capitalism, which is like the root cause of climate change, right? It's like, how much more, like, how much more can you reinforce the structure that you're supposedly trying to rail against 
when your discourse is all around productivity and this idea that you just have to, you know, um, you have to do all of these things, otherwise you're lazy and therefore can't be an actual climate activist. Um, I see this particularly with like the activism that has been happening around COVID, you know, like as soon, you know, like the whole time for years and years and years, disabled activists have been organizing online. We tweet stuff, we, you know, have Zoom meetings, we do podcasts like this, like we do all sorts of awesome things that happen online. And that is really valid activism, you know, just because it doesn't happen in person doesn't mean that it's not activism. But yet we hear all of these narratives around quote unquote slacktivism or like keyboard warriors or things like this, which inherently, you know, try to devalue that work that is being done online. Yet as soon as able-bodied people have to stay at home, suddenly we're seeing all of these conferences magically happening online. Suddenly all of these different activist things are happening online and online petitions are the only way that people can get these changes happening. And so I think I would really like to see the climate movement be much more aware and um, a lot more thoughtful about the narratives that they use because I think very often we're enforcing um you know, unintentionally, the narratives that we're using are actually enforcing the systems that have got us to this point in the first place. Is there anything else uh, you'd like to share, I think, in terms of just as we wrap up, you know, thinking about the future of climate activism, uh, especially, you know, as we, as the entire world is going through this horrific pandemic and it's not going to be, you know, the last one, right? We, we both know, like, this is going to happen again. So uh, any other final thoughts you have about the future of climate activism? Yeah, I think I think what's really on my mind at the moment, particularly as we are during this pandemic, which, as you say, we know is, you know, it's not the first and it's not going to be the last one. Um, and as we are also holding at the same time that there is another massive crisis going on in terms of climate change, um, I think the thing that sticks out to me in terms of the future is how we get there through accountability and being radically accountable to ourselves, to our communities, to um, and to the wider climate movement as well. And I say that because I think that a lot of a lot of these issues, you know, that I kind of just shared before, come up because people are not holding themselves accountable, or we find it very difficult to hold others to account. I think that this should be a moment for reflection for a lot of people, myself included. I've been doing a lot of reflecting on my own accountability and things um, because I think we need to be able to hold space um, for learning and we need to be able to hold space for people to work through these difficult and traumatic things that are happening. You know, climate change is really traumatic even you know even for the very privileged pakia or, or white people um 
who have a lot of privilege and are going to be the least affected. Like I do get that it's a scary thing for them as well. Um, but I think we need to be able to both hold space for people to learn and unpack and process that trauma while also recognizing that it's okay to challenge people and to challenge people to do better. And that that doesn't necessarily have to be something that's unkind. I think that we need to also be able to hold that while saying you need to do better. There are some people who are having it worse than you and it's okay for you to have those emotions, but actually this is a space that we need to center other voices. And so I think that I would like to see people taking this time to reflect because I think COVID in particular has brought a lot of these power dynamics to the surface. It's brought a lot of voices to the surface. Um, and so I think, yeah, I would really just hope that this moment can be a time for people to reflect, listen, to go out and try and find some of the answers themselves and then to hold themselves accountable. Um, because I think if we're going to have a future that does um, center and uplift and is a beautiful space for our structurally oppressed communities, then I think that is going to come from people having to be accountable um, to themselves, to each other, and to all of the communities that they might be affecting through their change. Wow. Thank you so, so very much for uh, spending this time with me and just sharing your story and your expertise. I am just incredibly appreciative and humbled, humbled by this experience. Oh, likewise, my friend, likewise, Ehoa. <laughs> I feel very, very privileged to have, um, yeah, to be able to share this digital space with you and to, um, yeah, to have this platform to share some of my fakaro or some of my ideas, which are not my own, but come from, yeah, come from all the communities that I'm a part of. I'm very grateful. This podcast is a production of the Disability Visibility Project and of my community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying disability, media, and culture. All episodes, including text transcripts, are available at disabilityvisibilityproject.com slash podcast. Did you also find out more about Kira on my website? The audio producer for this episode is Geraldine Asu. Digitalship by Latif Petfoud. The music by Motor Sports Camp. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or Google Play. Did you also support our podcast to a dollar month or more by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dvp. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com to slash DVP. Thanks for listening. Dear see you on the internet. Bye. Rocket to the blast stop. Stop, drop, dance off. <laughs>